Hi again, and welcome back to Trapped History. I'm Oswin Baker. And I'm Carla O'Shaughnessy, and we're here to share hidden stories of unsung heroes. In today's episode, we want to introduce you to the great Evelyn Dunbar, the only full-time female war artist of the Second World War, whose life, work and extraordinary impact we'll be discussing with the art historian Francis Spaulding. This probably won't surprise you very much, Oswin, but before we started planning this episode, I'd never heard of Evelyn before. And then the more I think about it, I can actually only name one female artist, and that's Tracy Emin, which is dreadful. Yeah, I mean, there's this age-old question, actually it's quite a new question, how many women artists can you name? Mm. And this is where we will be joined by silence and we will be joined by shame and humiliation. <laughs> um, uh, Gentilisa Artemisi, I think I can name her. Uh, Frida Kahlo. Oh, yes. One of my daughters was wearing a Jenny Savile t-shirt yesterday, so I can, <laughs> I can, I can uh, uh, pull that one out. <laughs> Cornelia Parker. But, you know, to be struggling is indicative of the problem and the place we're at. Mm. Oh, it's Sam Taylor Wood. Sam Taylor Woods, okay, yeah, again, okay. We, yeah, we, we can vaguely name a few people <laughs> from the last 30 years. Just Francis, about. how are you, how are you with, with naming women artists? Well, if we look at the period of, of, say, 20th century British art, I think that the only, the first couple who made a, um, the first two artists who made a real lasting impact was Barbara Hepworth. Of course, and yes. really brought uh, a woman artist right to the fore. And then I think Bridget Riley did a great deal of to course, absolutely yes. put women artists... Uh, women artists high up in the ranks but certainly the rest it's it's a lot of them did some very good work and it's achieved some recognition in their own lifetime but have been forgotten it's a real battle i think still yeah Mm. there's a whole if you can't see it you can't be it aspect as well isn't there and apparently only one percent of the national gallery's collection is by female artists yeah I mean, is, is, is it frustrating for you as, a, as an art historian, as a female art historian, to find that it's still an uphill struggle? Yes, I mean, I think at the moment it's getting quite a bit of help one way or another in that there's a lot of interest in what women are doing and how they're doing it. But what is frustrating, I think, for a, a much older generation who did good work, say, in the 50s, 60s or 70s, and now find it very difficult to be noticed... Artists of real quality and merit and have so much to give to the, to the world today are just not being seen or shown. So that's why we're looking at Evelyn today. We need to shine a light on these amazing artists. So, Oswin, can you tell us a little bit more about her? Yes. As I said, Carla, Evelyn's the only full-time female war artist of the Second World War. Mm-hmm. She's born in 1906, grows up in Kent. Dad was a draper and a tailor. And her mum is an amateur artist, a keen gardener and a Christian scientist. And all of those things come together really in Evelyn's work. I mean, the tailoring, the craft is central to so much of her art. Literally, she's often painting people sewing, knitting or stitching. And the gardening, well, Evelyn would later illustrate a number of books such as Gardener's Choice, And people's relationship with nature, taming it, cultivating it, tending crops, all of that. There is no Evelyn Dunbar art without that intimate relationship between people and the land. Mm. And I think that comes down to the last aspect of her parents in terms of Christian science. It was a relatively new phenomenon. It was the 1870s, a woman called Mary Baker... That's my mum's name, (laughs) but it it wasn't her, (laughs) Um, developed this new set of Christian teachings. And and 
if you think about the 1870s, 1880s, this is something we've talked about quite a lot in Trapped History, Carla, that this was the age of modernity. This was the age of suddenly you're getting electricity, cars, aeroplanes, all of these things mm. coming through. And it isn't just Christian science. There does seem to be some sort of spiritual yearning in the West, in America and in Europe. Eastern religions, there's this huge interest in them. Uh, spiritualism, theosophy, you've got Madame Blavatsky, Annie Besant, as a sort of response to modernity. And Christian science, its response seems to be stripping things back to basics. It's back to early Christianity, to a belief in spiritual reality. It isn't so much, it isn't necessarily going back to the land, but it does have. I think particularly in Evelyn's sort of lived experience of Christian science, a very strong link to nature. Yes, it gives to the, it gives to the looking after the environment and the land and gardens and so on a sense of the need for dedication and uh, putting in hard work towards its maintenance. There's quite a lot of ploughed fields in, in yes. her work. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that really is putting in the hard work. As for Evelyn the artist... She gets a scholarship to a grammar school. She studies at Rochester School of Art, Chelsea Art School, and finally at the Royal College of Art, where she graduates in 1933. The head of the Royal College of Art, Sir William Rothenstein, said of Evelyn that she possesses, and I quote, real genius. Mm. But straight out of art school, she spends three years painting the Broccoli School murals with Charles Mahoney, uh, who was an artist who'd worked on the legendary Morley College murals. I, I say legendary because they were destroyed in the Second World War, so we don't actually have, we, we can't see them now. Yeah. And, and, you know, you can see the Broccoli murals. They still exist. They're wonderful. Um, it's, it's not Broccoli School anymore. It's the Prendergast Girls' School. Mm. But Evelyn's work, it was unpaid. And it was three years of her life. South East London wasn't necessarily a bustling artistic world mm. and so she was in a bit of a backwater and she had this long-term on-off relationship with Charles Mahoney who does seem distinctly standoffish towards her which I think also sucked something out of her at that time. I mean in fact this is something Evelyn wrote in the mid-30s in a letter to Charles who she playfully refers to as matey. I feel one's got to stop looking to the future for rest or fulfilment, feeling the present to lack it, and try to find it now, now. Eh, matey? We must try more to love and understand and help each other, really. It seems to me so necessary in the light or darkness of present conditions that those who have the ideals of peace and integrity should preserve them in their own affairs and relationships and not allow the peace which comes from inside them to be stolen away by the strife that comes from outside them. I don't mean to preach, matey, and it doesn't matter if you and I differ in the detail of our ideas or in the expression of them. What matters is that we do agree in essence and in principle, and nothing must make us forget it. And, unfortunately, Charles does go cold on Evelyn. Uh, she has a miscarriage in the late 30s. And although I've not found anything substantial written about that in her letters or in the various biographies of Evelyn, I can't fail to see the emotional, psychological, mental, physical impact on her and on her relationship. And particularly for Christian scientists who 
would have felt she'd done something wrong or that she'd, you know... It had something had failed. Very, very, very painful that must have been. I've not really fully understood that before you read that letter. So. Evelyn does get a few commissions. There's the 1938 Gardener's Diary from Country Life magazine. But really when we're talking about 1938, 39, Evelyn is pretty much skint. Mm. So in early 1939, she opens her own gallery in Rochester called the Blue Gallery. And she invites Charles to exhibit, but also artists like Barnett Friedman and Edward Borden, who are now seen as important mid-century British artists. And maybe there's a clue in that. As we mentioned earlier, Evelyn had very much shunned commercial art, but Friedman, Borden and Eric Revilius had embraced poster art and commercial work. And theirs is the art today which can hang on your sitting room wall or sit in your kitchen cupboard. I think what you've been talking about, the, the, the lack of money, the lack of funds, and the brilliant step of deciding to open a gallery and all that sort of thing, the, the uh, boldness of it all is, is so impressive. But clearly it was a problem right the way through that how she managed to fund her career as an artist, I think. Mm. One of Evelyn's recent biographers has estimated, and they said that they did this calculation again and again because they couldn't believe it, but that from 1933 until her death, Evelyn would have earned no more than a bit over £1,000 a year from her art. So it's, it's precarious and it's hard work and sometimes that's too hard. And then on the 3rd of September 1939, Britain declares war on Germany. The very next day, one Kenneth Clark, he of civilization fame, who was at the time director of the National Gallery, he begins setting in motion what would quickly become the War Artists Advisory Committee. Now, obviously, artists have been depicting warfare for centuries, but the concept of a war artist, of an official artist to document war, had only really taken hold in World War I, and that was because artists came back from the front and exhibited their works. And faced with that, the British government quickly caught on, and there's, there's very clearly an element of controlling this as well, to ensure that they produce the right sort of war art. And actually, on the advice of Sir William Rothenstein, the man who'd said Evelyn had pure genius within her, they appointed the first official war artist in May 1916. And thinking about Kenneth Clark, I mean, he, he wasn't some idealist. He didn't assume that war art would necessarily produce the truth. I mean, this is what he wrote nearly 40 years later. I was not so naive as to imagine that we could secure many masterpieces, or even a record of war that could not be better achieved by photography. My aim, which of course I did not disclose, was simply to keep artists at work on any pretext, and, as far as possible, to keep them from being killed. By 1945, over 5,500 artworks have been created by more than 400 artists, only three of whom, unfortunately including Eric Revilius, would die during the war. So clearly Kenneth Clark had managed to get something right there. And many of those artworks, yes, they are one-off commissions, but 37 artists are employed full-time, including men like Barnett Friedman, Edward Borden and Eric Revilius but also including women. 
well, including one woman, Evelyn. I think when we meet her at her most forceful is when she writes to the War Artists Advisory Committee in 1940, asking for the job we've already mentioned. And I love the way she, in her letter she says that she would welcome the possibility of making a record of women's agricultural or horticultural work, anything connected with the land. And she goes on to say, I feel I could do this with keen understanding. So she's very certain about where her strengths were with regard to subject matter in art and what she could respond to. As you've already mentioned, this involvement of people with the land or people with, with uh, tasks that they had to do also fascinated her, and that appears in her war work too. Mm. Now clearly, Frances, her letter got somewhere, because three months later the War Artists' Advisory Committee, its minutes record Kenneth Clark's thoughts. The committee would do well to recommend that pictures of women's work should be painted. He asked members to bring with them to the next meeting suggestions for women artists who might be asked to paint subjects of this kind. Wonderful. Evelyn's deep affinity for the countryside make her a perfect choice to portray the work of the Women's Land Army. So she's taken on and she's contracted to produce six paintings for 50 guineas. From 1943 onwards, she's fully salaried too. And I think it's also worth remembering that while Evelyn was the only full-time female war artist, there were another 50 or so other women war artists. And there are some famous ones, like Dame Laura Knight, who's Ruby Loftus screwing a breech ring, and that's a, a dungareed woman with her hair up in a scarf, working really hard in a war factory, helped inspire Rosie the Riveter of the We Can Do It fame. Oh, right. Yeah, but there are also women like Ethel Gabane, who was commissioned by the WAAC to produce nearly 40 pieces... And she wrote of one picture she produced of women filling sandbags. The four lady. There are ladies, not women, of a sand gang. Wears dungarees and clogs and, on top of it all, a wreath of gay artificial flowers around her cap. They're doing really fine work. The borough engineer at Islington told me they actually fill more sandbags than the men. I think they're worthy of being recorded. It's that last phrase which is really telling for me, worthy of being recorded. That's mm. why her pictures mm. are so important, mm. because they really show how a society with women at its heart can respond to the horrors which war throws at it. It's something which you don't necessarily see in a lot of the male art of the war. Mm. And you know, I suppose the, the point being that there's so much more to war art than war. Yeah. I think that, Carla, you and I, we've put a brave face on uh, talking about <laughs> art so far. But ultimately, we're, we're very close now to scraping the bottom of the barrel yes. uh, in terms of our, our, our artistic appreciation. So, I mean, you've heard her already, but I really think it's time to bring on today's special guest. We're delighted to be joined by Francis Spaulding art historian, critic and leading authority of 20th century British art, whose magisterial book, The Real and the Romantic, English Art Between Two World Wars, came out last year. Francis, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Francis, one thing I would really like to get your, your mm. help with is, so your, your book, which is absolutely marvellous, it's called The Real and the Romantic. It's not called Realism and Romanticism. Yeah. And I think that there may, I think there's a clue there for us with Evelyn as well about real and romantic. I just wonder if you can help us 
unpack those terms and, and, and the difference between them and, and artistic terms about realism and romanticism? Yes, realism without any doubt was the language of reconstruction after the First World War. People didn't want a kind of avant-garde style that departed from some things that were solid and real and recognisable and gave a sense of continuity. There'd been too much destruction, it was an awful war. So there was this desire for something that was stable and still, and, and you see it in painting after painting, that they're searching for something that is not going forward, it's thinking back, it's wanting a sense of continuity and stability. These were the things that, generally speaking, art, artists of all sorts were looking for. I noticed that many artists use this term, the real. Um, I suddenly felt this was real, and not realistic, but real, and it implied something that meant that the work of art had arrived at something that was full of integrity, wholeness, as something that was satisfying, right, had a right position or right feeling to it, that they were onto something that was actually going to make the picture work. I suppose the word we would use today is authentic. Now, the romantic is something also different, but a feeling for the romantic doesn't seem tied just to that period. It seems to float in and out of much English art. And I would say that Evelyn Dunbar painted a romantic picture, I think in the late 1930s. It's a long, thin, horizontal painting of a garden and a stretch of things in that garden, trees, flower beds, and so on. So it's in the Tate Gallery. You hardly ever see it uh, hung. But it's also very English in the way it's slightly misty. It has this sort of dampness yes. feel of a, yeah. just after rain or a early morning or early evening, that dusky kind of quality. And it's just full of the kind of qualities that Kenneth Clark in his writing about landscaping art often identifies with um, the weather in our souls. That's his <laughs> phrase. And it's something very English. It's something that we feel more perhaps the people in other countries, because after all, we do experience quite a lot of rain and, and a kind of misty light and under certain conditions. I think it is actually called Winter Gardens. And, oh. and just, just to be clear for our listeners, OK, we're very aware that this is audio, so, so we're trying to paint pictures. And mm-hmm. Francis is painting pictures much better than, uh, uh, than Carla or I ever could. But we will ensure that... Um, uh, on our website and on Instagram, that there'll be carousels of all of the pictures which we're talking about today. So, Francis, you've 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 helped us hopefully try and understand a bit about real and romantic. In Evelyn's work, is that communicated? Do you feel is is that pretty much its nature? And so, within the nature, you have real and romantic there in one piece. I think you particularly have both there in the, the, a land girl with the bale bull. You you have the uh... You have both the realism of the situation very clearly communicated, but you also have this sort of the glorious feeling of the stretch of the landscape and that beautiful stretch of mackerel sky. And it shows a land girl approaching a bale bull, quite a fierce-looking creature. I've never tried to uh, uh, catch a bull, so I didn't have a clue what to do, but clearly this girl knows what she's doing. I, I, I struggled for a while to work out, what is a bale bull? And, and there's a quote from Evelyn herself. The bale is the movable shed where the milking is done. Soon after dawn in the early summer, the girl has to catch and tether the bull. She entices him with a bucket of fodder and hides the chain behind her, ready to snap on the ring in his nose as soon as it is within her reach. A delicate and dangerous job. And I think that issue of the delicate and dangerous job 
There's two things coming together. It's faith because if you have to get it absolutely right, I'd be <laughs> terrified going anywhere near and yeah, the snout and uh, <laughs> ring. But uh, very, very agile. Yeah, she was. Yes. And in many ways, I suppose a delicate and dangerous job, sort of potentially, could sum up how Evelyn is trying to portray women's dangerous and, and, and delicate jobs during the war as well. One of the other things about the picture is in most of Evelyn's work, her war work in particular, they throng with people. They're full of people. In this one, you have the land girl who, who sort of is up close. And then back in the distance, there's one person, I think, and I think it's a man, and he's got his back turned. So she's totally the only other person in the picture yes. isn't observing what she's doing. So she's totally alone mm. against this big bull. Yeah. <laughs> and that's the war. I mean that that's you know, there's so many things that you can read into these things, but yeah. for me that's that's almost saying this is this is woman in the war. What makes this picture so utterly memorable is not only this rather dramatic moment, but also the sky, which has this mackerel yes. clouds floating yeah. across the, in the background. Very, very beautiful. And you almost feel that the meaning or feeling of that painting is as much conveyed by the mackerel sky as it is by the activity of the land girl and the bull. So it's a moment of hope, of patience, of sort of, sort of things being just held at the right moment in the time of day. It's a wonderful painting. It is that thing about, about the moment as well, mm. because it's a moment which in some way, it could go either way, you know. Mm. If she gets it wrong, you know, that's a, that, that bull, that's Ernest Hemingway. That's, that is <laughs> masculinity, machismo yes. there. And she, and, and but the with interest... this, this extraordinary tenderness expressed yeah. through the sky. Yeah. Yeah. It's a gross, most unusual yeah. painting. The, uh, that early letter that she sent in to the War Artists Advisory Committee saying, I would like a job if possible, I'd like to record anything that involves, you know, um, what did she say, farming or whatever. But the, 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 the emphasis on her desire to do it, I feel I could do it with keen understanding. Well, here we have the proof of what she was saying. When you look at Evelyn's pictures, which you can find on our website, trappedhistory.com, and also on our Instagram posts, there are two things which, which should really, uh, well, which strike me. I shouldn't say should strike you. The first is that there are hardly any men in these pictures. They are, it's very much portraying women's experience, it's almost exclusively women's experience of the war whether they're baling hay, queuing for dinner, queuing for food rations, making camouflage nets, plotting the weather for the Air Force. It is women. The other thing which really strikes me is that these pictures, in most cases, there are a couple of really significant exceptions, but in most cases they are thronging with people. There are lots of people in these pictures and they are all intensely occupied with a task, a, a, a common task they're all doing. So they are all involved in the baling of the hay outdoors. They're all involved in stitching together camouflage nets. They're all involved in pruning uh, apple trees in an orchard. And that concentrated 
quiet activity. They're also, they're not talking to each other. You know, there's, there's very little communication between the subjects in these pictures. Does seem to communicate something strongly to me about the intensity of the experience that these women are feeling away from the front line. Does that sound passable to you, Francis? I think I've agreed with everything that you've said about these pictures. The, uh, it is uh, a very unique moment in time, and everything about the war, I suppose, would have involved people in it, whether at home or abroad. And uh, and we, we, those, if one thinks back to, I suppose, everybody listening to Churchill's speeches on the radio, the radio, or wireless as it was then called, performing such an important communicative form of communication, it all con- confirms what you feel about these pictures, that it's a tremendously democratic uh, approach to the making of art and the subject of art. Initially she was sent to document the women's land army, and and that's where you get these astonishing pictures of women out in the fields picking potatoes, baling hay. I mean, the, the land girls, which is what they were sort of colloquially called, there were 80,000 of them. Many of them were conscripted, and they did all the work which male farm labourers had done before they were called up to fight. And so you get this very strange situation that because of these 80,000 land girls during the war that the farming workforce actually rose during the war and the area of land under cultivation went up by 50%. So it's a huge amount of work which these people are doing. Yes. Figures like that all help one understand much better how important these pictures are. But, I mean, they're also very attractive and very full of interest, the angles taken on the particular subject, the attention to detail as well as to the sweep of the composition as a whole. All oh, oh, that's wonderful. I love the, particularly the, of course, the one, it is part of the series, isn't it? But the uh, East Mulling, the pruning of the apple trees, she not only gives you a very vivid scene in the centre of the painting of that activity, going on and ladders being moved in order to reach the height of certain branches. But all around the edge, she's framed it with details of a hand holding a pair of secateurs or a bowl of apples, a a saw, a handhold touching a saw. So the various activities are given you in in small details like that, all around the edge, like a decoration. So uh, it, it makes a very interesting composition and perhaps one of the strongest paintings alongside the land girl and the bale bull. But they're all um, full of feeling for what's going on and mm. uh, empathy with the mm. workers. Um, and even with the people lined up outside the fish and chip shop, which she's painted, is, a, is another sense of saying, yes. I belong I, here. You know. <laughs> and I think the interesting thing about the, the queue at the fish shop, it's, it's very simple. There's a fish shop and there are lots of people queuing outside it. And you, and you as the observer, you're on the other side of the road. And... Uh, it looks as if somebody's just sort of popped into view slightly. There's there's yeah, this there's this young there, woman's yeah. face yeah. up front, and there's a mm. uh, an RAF officer cycling past on his bicycle. Yeah. The interesting thing about this picture is this is almost a marriage proposal because actually the woman's face you see up front that's a self-portrait of Evelyn, mm-hmm. and the RAF officer going past that's Roger who oh. Evelyn marries in 1942. <laughs> How lovely. Aww. But I, I love also the one about the, what is it, convalescent the nurses 
making camouflage nets. It's a very specific thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it looks like it's in some country house, which must have been requisitioned. Yes, yeah. And there's a big table with a number of nurses. Doing things at waist level, and then there's one on the floor where they're all bending over and crouching down to, to weave into this net bits and pieces of fabric or something to enable it to, for the net to disguise what is underneath. Yes. So it's some terribly important work. And you see this little one nurse with her white headdress on, in, indicating what, who she is and what she does, just coming in at the door at the back, as <laughs> if to see what's going on. <laughs> I was interested seeing the, the camouflage nets one, because I know that Barnett Friedman also, he, I mean, he painted pictures of camouflage nets in situ. Mm -hmm. And so you get these two versions of what the camouflage net is. Here it is, it's a bit of sewing and it's a bit of stitching. Mm. And in Barnett Friedman's, it is the thing which is thrown over a tank, the thing which is thrown, mm. thrown over an anti-aircraft gun. And you yeah. see the use that the women's work is put to. And uh, also very lovely is the Women's Land Army Hostel, where they're queuing up for their food, uh, basic chairs and tables laid out with cutlery and waiting for them to sit down and eat. They obviously created trousers that were very baggy, so you could fit your tools in the pockets. <laughs> yes, yes, instead of having tool belts. It must have been a period, you know, obviously of tension and worrying and so on, but also one of great camaraderie, I think. So the war is over and the WAAC shuts up shop. Where does that leave Evelyn? So she's married, as we said, the, the man on the bicycle, uh, Roger Foley, uh, that's who she weds in 1942. They don't have children. Okay. She can't, and that may be to do with her earlier miscarriage. And, mm -hmm. and you know, she, she paints, she illustrates books. She's a part-time post at the Oxford School of Art and is a visiting teacher at the Ruskin School of Art. So she has very much, she has lots of things to do. One thing which I would say, in 1957, she starts a mural, another mural, at, at Bletchley Park. And this is... You know, long after the war, and because of the Official Secrets Act, no one knows what had been going on at Bletchley. So the fact that she's doing, doing a mural there is just coincidence, and it was a teaching college at this point. But Evelyn abandons it and scales it down sort of halfway through because she realises that she's bitten off more than she can chew. And I suppose perhaps to me this again sums up another part of Evelyn, that there's a fragility to her, something that she was very aware of during her time as a commissioned war artist, Evelyn was very concerned about that she felt that she was taking a very long time to produce artworks. And she wrote to the WAAC saying, Perhaps like Johnny in the nursery rhymes, I'm too slow. Perhaps I must learn the art of working to time. They're very nice about it. They reply, you know, don't worry, take your time. They do suggest maybe you might want to change your medium, move from oils to watercolours. But as time goes on, you, you do get slightly snappier letters from the WAAC to her saying, come on, can you give us some work? And, and I th you know, what we were talking about earlier about whether she was as connected with a commercial mindset of what a professional artist may be or not. I think, again, that sort of points up part of sort of the duality of, of, of Evelyn's nature in a way. Don't forget, as you, as you already said, Francis, she is the person who pushed herself forward to become the only full-time salaried woman war artist in the Second World War. I mean, that takes 
guts mm. and nerves to yeah. do that. Francis, where where would you place Evelyn? Is is there a, is there a legacy there? For us today, looking at her work, there's a definite legacy. It tells us a huge amount about the Second World War, what was going on in this country to make the war bearable and possible. I mean, to to do what was possible to try and win the war. So there is definitely a legacy in terms of what she left for us to look at and admire and think about and learn from. Once you can put a sense of the person with the pictures themselves, you you get a person that's going to last, you know, who will remain somewhere uh, to be findable yeah. by others. And I think this interest in her work will grow and grow. Do you think she... She was clearly, as we've already said, she's the person who put herself forward to, to effectively be the only woman full-time war artist. Do you think she would have seen herself as a pioneer? Do you think she, that would have been something she would have been proud about? Or would that not even have, have crossed her mind? She must have sensed that she was a pioneer in some way, in the way that she was able to not only understand the work that was being done in the countryside, but also um, communicated through her art. And loving that landscape all her life and knowing about it and knowing about what happens each season and so on. So she was seeing herself alongside farm workers and not necessarily grandly proud of what that knowledge is or feeling that it's anything that special, but being sure that she had that knowledge and she understood it and felt an empathy towards the work going on in the land and and the land itself. So she understood properly what her, her own sort of inner strengths were. On the 12th of May, 1960, uh, she's aged 53, Evelyn goes for a walk with Roger for an evening stroll in the woods around the house where they were living in Kent, when suddenly and completely unexpectedly she collapsed. Roger ran towards her, but found her lifeless. He later wrote, Apparently in good health, she passed away without warning or farewell. No bed, no walls, just the clouds. Mm. <laughs> but most touching, that not lying in any room or yeah. any bed, but just the clouds. No beds, no walls, mm. just the clouds. Amazing. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's her in, in, in the in landscape. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm. yes. Thank you very much, Francis. You've been listening to Trapped History, written and presented by Oswin Baker and Carla O'Shaughnessy. Our engineer has been M.K. Lee, and the Trapped History theme is by Pavlo Buterin. You've also heard the voices of Steph Elmore, Tim Redman, and Luz Cossette. If you've enjoyed this episode of Trapped History, please tell your friends and give us a rating. It really helps. And head over to trappedhistory.com for bonus episodes, transcripts, and more. Thanks for listening, and see you soon. Thank you.